Welcome back to the Martial Arts Media Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Joe Olympic. Joe Olympic. <laughs> Joe Olympic. I, I like that. I like that. Now, uh, the Olympics are still going on technically, correct? There's still events or is it over? I think it's still going on. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. No, in fact, I know it is because uh, my parents are still uh, recording for me karate stuff today. Okay. And maybe it's delayed by like 12 hours or whatever. But so I know yeah. there's still Olympics being shown today on the USA Network. Oh, yeah. There, there, and there's definitely some uh, there. There have been definitely some great martial art performances since we last recorded. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I got to watch. So the first night I was eagerly anticipating it. We uh, went over to my parents' house because it was on the NBC Sports app. Uh, and so they have, you know, traditional cable, of course. And so we were watching it and it was like two, two and a half hours of the women's kata. And then they got to the finals. And then by that point, don't get me wrong, I love the kata, but I wanted to see the kumite. And I also wanted, you know, my parents to see that. So in other words, the sparring, because my dad really enjoyed watching the kata, but he's just like, I don't know what I'm looking for. And I was like, you know what? Uh, and so I explained like a lot of the basics, but even me, I'm not an expert on karate kata competition, but, uh, and so the funny part is like two hours in everyone, including Jessica and, uh, uh, my mom, Judy and stuff, they were, uh, very aware more of what we were looking for, right? Like technique, mm -hmm. this alignment, but then suddenly it switched over to the kumite. And that was much easier. Like I explained the rules and this and that. And it's just so fun and so amazing to watch uh, point karate. I love point karate. It's... Uh, I never competed in it in case people are wondering. No, I wish I would have. Uh, but unfortunately, as I've kind of mentioned, I didn't really go to the best uh, school when I was growing up. The first school I went to. But uh, anywho, yeah, I remember that. So that first night, Wednesday, we just stayed up pretty late watching uh the olympics but uh and i'm excited to catch up on it probably on monday i'll go over there and watch all the dvr as they say right uh of the olympics but otherwise and yeah so we've made some we won a couple gold medals in wrestling which is great because i think we yeah. have been on a dr major drought for gold medals in wrestling if is, i'm not is mistaken it possible was it possible that our drought went back the whole way to 1996 and Kurt Angle after his gold medal? I don't think it was that long, but I think it was maybe Athens, Early Greece or earlier. Right? Yeah. yeah. So that's that's pretty close. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're not legit unless you win a gold medal with a broken neck. Well, yes. Which or, is as, what, or as he would say, a broken freaking neck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's damn true. That is uh, pretty loco to think about. But uh, it is. I, I was I actually went back and watched that match, by the way. And I sent it over because we were talking about uh, great Olympic moments through text uh, group texting with my mother and sister. And I, I sent them uh, sent them the video of him uh, winning the gold medal, you know, fellow fellow Pennsylvanian. Uh, winning the gold medal with a broken neck, and it's just—it's just—it's a remarkable uh, flashback, and just watching the tears and everything. My question to you is: What's the name of this group text? Like party animals, or uh, yes, party party animals. Kelly craziness. Yes, that would be a cool name. I like that. I like that. Uh, yeah, so uh, real quick, I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners. We've uh, been uh, increasing every week, which is great. It's so funny. The Mortal Kombat episode is still uh, bringing in like 20-something listeners a week. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. But uh, yeah, so we're we're slowly getting there. We're slowly getting there. We're having listeners from all over the world. But uh, this last week, and uh, oops, let me pull up the uh, stats real quick because our insights... Uh, we're pretty cool because I want you to take a guess. So obviously the U.S. is still our predominant country uh, and the cities and so forth. But guess who was number two uh, in the last seven days behind America? Okay, I'm going to go with Australia. Wrong. You get two more guesses. <laughs> okay. You get two more guesses. Which, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to give you a hint now. Imagine <laughs> a fraction of the size of Australia, and no, it's not New Zealand. Just, okay. a, but a fraction, a fraction. Okay, for the record, a fra it is one of the larger continents in the world. So let me just imagine a fraction of one of the larger continents in the world. Imagine it's like a city in Australia. So Hong Kong. No, but a very good guess. Now you are extremely close for your final guess. Extremely close. I want to see how bad you mess it up. Okay, extremely close. 
I want to go towards Japan, but I'm going to drop down to Singapore. Oh, ding, 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 ding. What? You are the winner on the country is right. Yes. We, uh, our second most listened to country this week was Singapore. So to our listeners in Singapore, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate the support. Uh, uh, so thank you guys. Uh, and if what's sorry, what is if you're is like support. Oh, support. Yeah, or like encouragement, kind of like. Uh, so I would support you, or like my dad supports me, right? But uh, in case uh, you are. Uh, Cantonese speakers, uh, dolce, dolce. That's all. That's all I can say. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, hopefully you're Mandarin speakers, and well, obviously you're English speakers because you're listening to our podcast. Either that, or you're you're learning English. Maybe I don't know. So uh, this is the place to do it. Yeah, this is the place to do it. So if that's the case, thank you and keep going. All right. Today's uh, today's key American phrase is. Jeff Wincott is a great actor. <laughs> Jeff, let's spread it. Let's spread the word. All right, so we we had some things discussed to talk about today. Uh, but before we get into our main theme and so forth and some of the very relevant news that's happened, do you have anything you want to talk about? Anything you've watched? Any questions you have for me? Any? You know, I, yes, I okay. do. And specifically watching, watching the Olympics, it brought up one of the questions we didn't get to in the Ask Us Anything episode. Oh. And it is uh, from my friend Marvin. Okay. Uh, he wants to know is weight class the ultimate determiner in fights? In uh, in fights or in overall prowess and like who's the best, do you mean? Because at the well, end. I, I, I'm going off the top of my head of his question. It uh -huh. was not what you just suggested, but I, I like the direction you're going. Because that's the only way you can really look at this question because. Uh, in the uh, read, uh, say the question again, please. So I think uh, essentially the question is, does weight class determine the result? Well, I mean, mm, and if if it's an open weight competition, then yes, because at the end of the day, the equally as trained bigger guy is always going to beat the equally as trained smaller guy, and even a high level. Let's say it's the greatest bantamweight of all time fighting uh, even just a top 20 heavyweight, that top 20 heavyweight, even if they're not remembered by anybody, is still going to be able to beat that greatest of all time bantamweight just based off the sheer size difference and the fact that they're both highly trained professionals, right? It, it doesn't necessarily mean the case if you're, you know, the greatest bantamweight of all time is just some random heavyweight dude who's never trained and picks a fight with you. That's different. That's completely different. But in the scheme of trained fighters, yes, the the and we're considering their professionals and they're in a sense equally trained, quote unquote, the bigger guy is just going to have that advantage. It's just the way it works. So I, I do have a, I do have a, a few questions for you. Sure. How in the world then do you explain the results in the big brawl? Well, uh, Jackie okay. was juicing. He was on steroids. Uh, that's okay. the only way. To, <laughs> the well, he big, was also dodging tennis balls. Yes, this is true. Uh, with the help of his uh, Japanese uncle. Mako. Mako. That's right. That's right. Uh, no, but in, in all seriousness, uh, do you think that there are exceptions to that rule? And Well, yeah. And so before, maybe in like even in the early days. So, and I know maybe some traditionalists, the first thing they're going to bring up is uh, even, I want to say it was the first uh, full contact tournament that Benny the Jet fought in. It was a tough man tournament in Hawaii in the 70s and he beat, and I think the footage is actually on YouTube, and he beat like, it was open weight and he won and he beat these guys that were literally like seemed like 100 pounds bigger than him. Uh, but that's different because they weren't necessarily equally trained or equally as well versed in full contact fighting, which Benny technically started as a peewee boxer, right? Uh, and it's funny, I just uh, discussed this with an episode I recorded yesterday with my friend Antonio, which will be dropping soon, or probably has already come out before this episode. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's that that would be like an exception. You look, and obviously, the early UFC events, right? Hoist Gracie 
came in and won, and he was much smaller than a lot of his opponents. But now we have to come back to that word, equally trained. Mm -hmm. So you have guys that some of them didn't even really know what they were getting into. And you have this extremely high level Brazilian jiu-jitsu athlete uh, who also comes from you know, the Gracie family from Brazil, you know, born and bred into this fighting culture, including Valley Tudo, the early like no rules fight contest in Brazil. And so it's it's slightly different. So it's like, yeah, you may have beat th- these bigger guys and so forth. Like, for example, in the final fight, he beats. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. I always want to say the French actor's name instead of uh, the actual because his name is Gerard and he's a savant <laughs> fighter, but not from France. I want to say from Holland. Uh Gerard, I'm gonna have to look it up real quick. I apologize. Uh, Gerard Gordo. See, I always want to say Gerard. Yeah, exactly. So Gerard Gordo, who's uh, was a very experienced uh, savat fighter, kickboxer, and you know looked bigger than Hoist Gracie, but he also had no grappling, right? And so Gracie just takes him down, submits him. Of course, that's the way it's going to work. And so. There's obviously examples of that, but we really don't have a relevant example of modern day equally as trained MMA fighters uh, fighting because it's it's kind of silly and it's dangerous and it just uh, doesn't really make sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and, and for me, like the, I would say the, the exception is if you go over and look at sumo, uh, because that is essentially an open weight division. And for me, one of the greatest sumo wrestlers of all time, and we've talked about this, my inspiration for getting into martial arts in the first place was Chiyono Fuji, who was the grand champion, and he only weighed about 258 pounds versus like his opponents who were between 300 and 600 pounds. Of course, equally trained, training technique could be different. Konishiki's training technique could be, you know, pushing forward and eating. You know, eating is part of the training, whereas his training was Aikido. Mm. Uh, and, you know, just like moving opponents around. And that's a great example. And uh, one of the things I like about that, too, is in theory, that is the whole theory behind judo. And then obviously Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which evolved from judo, is that the smaller opponent can use leverage to beat the bigger opponent. But then at the end of the day, typically with those like grappling arts, I mean, uh, let's say you're a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and you're uh like what in the UFC would be a lightweight, 155 pounds. But then you're going against a uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt who is a uh, heavyweight, you know, 225 pounds. Odds are the bigger guy is going to have a strength and size advantage. But, you know, when it comes to grappling, there is always that chance. So I think perhaps, and I'm not the most well-versed in grappling, so, I, you know, I can't really speak on it. Perhaps there is... Uh, exceptions to the rule in that sense but from someone that has been kickboxing a very long time uh, and boxing let's take you know uh, l- let's say you, okay one of my all-time favorite boxers Willie Pep from like the 1920s 30s very evasive movement incredible uh, our sensei Sugarfoot has had me watch him before uh, he was an inspiration for Bruce Lee uh, very you know incredible movement uh, way ahead of his time but you know he was like in the 130 range I think imagine him fighting Mike Tyson uh, it's just <laughs> not going to work you know uh, because when you start hitting each other uh, I, th- I feel like that adds a huge difference but uh, I think your sumo example is a, a great uh, exception to the rule and it would be interesting to see in modern sumo that happen again Yeah, I would like to see that especially with as physical training has advanced so much because what people also forget is sumos are in in incredible shape. Yes, they have an extremely high body fat percentage, but what they can do in their physical abilities is phenomenal. And uh, it would be interesting to see now with like more modern training and strength training and all this, how that would affect it. And a great example that if anybody wants to see is you can watch the short documentary on Netflix, Netflix, Little Miss Sumo fantastic and you get to see a lot of her training and so forth but at the end of the day uh spoiler alert at the end she goes to the world championships in taiwan and she gets second place because her opponent the russian girl is literally twice her size and they're both heavyweights right but holy moly that girl is huge and she almost wins it's so close it's such a close uh match but anywho uh great answer and uh Good, 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 good question too. Because it is something that is in my is on my mind. Because when you watch like the point fighting, mm-hmm. you sometimes wonder like, 
why are, you know, can, can someone slip out of a particular uh, weight category? And I'm sure they definitely could and compete. But well, there's we, also a fatigue factor that yes. could come in. And we see that you in the know, UFC. We've seen fighters successfully go up and down in weight classes and capture maybe two belts and this and that. We've also seen fighters fail miserably when they try to do it. So depends on the individual, depends on your genetics, depends on uh, your build, et cetera, et cetera. Well, with that said, uh, I don't know if you have any questions for me. Any questions for Gavin, son? Uh, How how has your text thread with uh, an email thread with uh, White Tiger been? Oh, uh, they uh, yeah, it it continues. And you know, the thing is, like, I I was very upfront with them. Yes, you know, saying like my teacher, my sensei is in the valley. Right, hard to get to sometimes at pastor school. It'd be great to train here sometime. I love the I love the embracement of qigong there, of the iron palm and iron fist training that they do, but you know it's for me to commit to a school it would I would really want to do it the right way which is at least two times three times mm-hmm. a week and you know come on it's I, I don't mean I don't mean come on like it's come yeah. on it's Petey come on yeah. I, I I can't it's funny you say that though so I I love my gym I'm training out of in uh, Rancho Cordova right Sacramento area unfortunately since I started going there of course there's been a bunch of highway construction that started which is added almost 30 minutes to the trip one way and it's just become so long that yeah. uh, and I still would love to go there at least once a week but I've been trying to find other more local options but where I am there really aren't any local options so I did go and try the one like local MMA gym up in this general area uh, very nice facilities very nice uh, people and so forth but their MMA gym puts a huge emphasis on BJJ like online their marketing and their videos it's very slick their BJJ program is very good there's literally nothing on the kickboxing program which Mm -hmm. they only have twice a week and it's only an hour-long class so I went to go see it in person and kind of you know going there I'm like okay this is not a fighter's Muay Thai class right it's it's like overall fitness this and that I'm like okay so you know it's not for me uh and that's a bit unfortunate and you know they they were very reasonably priced and I actually you know they had a whole like rule set gym the rule the gym's rules and I really liked it but one of them also was about you know not cross training at other gyms Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, and for us with, uh, and I can kind of understand the reason why they're like, we are a competition gym and we don't, you know, want you training with someone you might be fighting and, and it shows disrespect for your teacher and stuff. But the interesting part is our, uh, sensei Sugarfoot would say the exact opposite. Yes. I used to tell him not just about going into other gyms and training with those guys, which he highly encouraged. I would tell him I'm going to go train with another coach sometimes just to learn. And he's like, son, that's great. That's great. You learn what they got to teach you, blah, blah, blah. He was never like an ounce of, of jealousy or anything because that's also the way he came up. Yeah, You know, when coming up, he was training at both the Jet Center and the Muhammad Ali, Joe <laughs> Frazier gym, right? <laughs> who, who, else, who else did that in this world? Yeah. And Seriously. S- yeah. And so, like, for example, one of my, I had uh, my other coach in L.A. was Coach Kathy Long, one of the greatest of all time. And I would tell him, and he knows Kathy, and I'd be like, hey, I'm going to go to Kathy's class just because I really liked a lot of her uh, technical sparring drills and stuff. And he was he was always so happy to hear that. Or I'd be like, oh, you know, Herm and I are going to go to this gym and uh, work with these guys and spar with these guys. And, like, that's, you know, that's uh, awesome. But I kind of uh, went off topic because the reason I brought up is I also checked out uh, another Muay Thai gym that's technically the closest to me, and but their website is one of those hardcore, straight up marketing uh, websites <laughs> yeah. where they don't even give the schedule, they don't even give uh, uh, the prices or anything. Now, schedule, I've, I've, th- that's pretty hardcore when you don't even put the schedule on there, and you're forced. You try calling and they don't answer, of course. So you're mm-hmm. forced to give all your information just to get the basic information. And then it slowly comes in via text and email these, hey, blah, blah, blah. And, you, and then you have to respond to that one. So pretty much it takes like five or six messages before you get any of the basic information. But yeah. uh, I, it appears they've let me be. And I was like, uh, thank you so much. Once I know my schedule, this and that. But uh, ideally, some sort of miracle will happen and uh, I'll get hired uh doing what I want to do in the area where my current gym is. And then the drive will be economical and worth it. So I'm keeping that, my fingers crossed, that'd be but great. I'm exploring options just in case. No, that that's great. I, I, and what I'm doing right now, because I, after trying out the white tiger and, and et cetera, I, uh, I went back to, uh, 
Keith Cook, Kirabayashi's uh, shadow kickboxing yeah. class in the morning. It works 8.30 to 9.30. I start here at 9. I come into work, take the class in, in one of the dance studios, nice. come down to work, and I'm ready to go at 9.45. That's the best do, way to do it. Yeah, I do it like twice a week, and that keeps me, uh, you know, it keeps me moving and picking up some techniques, which I think are definitely in alignment, alignment with what PD teaches and alignment with what, uh, you know, Sifu Don teaches over mm-hmm. in Vegas. So I'm taking those classes and then I'm trying to get up to CPD once a week right now. And it's, nice. it's working out great. Cool. Yeah. You know, the thing is, and so for some people, it's like, here's the deal. I've devoted so much time. And so, for example, right now, my round trip is four hours. And that's so rough. that's, that's insane. And that's one that's of the a week, cr- right? That's each time I go each day four hours. Yeah. yeah. I understand that, that that's exactly why I'm doing the yeah. virtual stuff. Too. And so, uh, and for people, well, if you're really hardcore, let me tell you something. I've been my whole time in LA training with Pete and stuff. I was committing hours on end commuting and hours on end commuting for my job. I was running a mobile fitness business, right? So I've gotten to the point now where yes, I still want to compete. There's still things I want to accomplish, but I also just can't and don't want to devote that much time to commuting. Yeah, <laughs> You know what I mean? And yeah. it's just, you, you get older and you understand, hey, uh, I'm glad I did it before. I put in the time to get to where I am now, but now I also just, you know, uh, I need to focus on other things too. So hopefully yeah. uh, everything works out because I love the gym I train at right now. They run like the best program I've seen locally. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But so th- Go ahead. We, you know, one of the one of the things we were going to think about doing today was like riffing, mm-hmm. and we've essentially just started riffing. But I, I think we have. I don't want to. I don't want to like derail you too much. Or no, let's let's, much. let's let's keep riffing. If you got another question, let's do it. What's up? What's up? What's up? Okay, so um, I did. We talk. Do we? We didn't touch this question last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like we're you know we're watching the Olympics. We're watching martial arts, and there's you know, UFC, the MMA, you know, mixed martial arts. And the question that came in was, um, has, has the UFC proved that MMA is the greatest martial arts? And I wanted to, I wanted to twist that around and kind of say, has UFC shown us which martial arts or has, forget UFC, has mixed martial arts shown us a superior martial art? And, you know, kind of, kind of now shifting gears back to the Olympics, watching the, the Kumite, uh, the judo and the taekwondo, uh, and I'd say even archery in in some cases. Although I know it's mm-hmm. Western archery, have we seen? Have, are we seeing like a, a almost like a resurgence of martial arts or it, a strength a, a resurgence within a, a type of martial arts? Because I think there have been ebbs and flows with I don't want to say popularity, but where the where the special. I don't know what I'm saying. Can well, you, can you, can no, you finish I, this question for I, me? Yeah, I get what you're saying. So first of all, I want to start off with saying what the UFC has shown us is not that any one martial art is superior to the other, even though people are going to make that argument. But what the UFC has done is it has evolved, not just shown, evolved martial arts more in the last. So we'll talk about UFC one, like 1993, like uh, almost 30 years than it had mm-hmm. for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years before that. Right. And what it did is it gave us a real practical uh, template or uh, showcase to actually test a lot of these things. So, and what it showed us is that for no holds barred, for lack of a better term, like full on fighting where everything goes, you cannot be singular in your approach. You have to be well-rounded. And so we've gone through ebbs and flows where it's like at the beginning, oh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the best. It is the ultimate martial art. It's all you need, blah, blah. And then suddenly it's like, oh, wait, no. Uh, then the the wrestlers came in and then started showing their dominance. And wait, oh, no. So now the guy, the kickboxers who learned a little bit of wrestling, they showed their dominance. And then, oh, then there's this resurgence of uh, suddenly a traditionalist type guy like Leota Machida comes in. Oh, well, see, karate's the key and blah, blah. And so I think, first of all, obvious, uh, kind of reiterate what I just said. The UFC has shown that, uh, and I consider mixed martial arts a sport, an athletic endeavor, not a style, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to call it a style, I think is a bit of a misnomer. But, you know, someone may disagree with me because these days there's young fighters that come up learning, quote unquote, MMA. That's what they were born and raised into. So yeah. it's maybe it, it isn't. Maybe it can be considered a style. But I think that's a whole 
another topic for a whole nother episode. But in the interim, I am going to discuss MMA as a sport as opposed to a style. And what it has shown us is now that the not just the actual applications, but also the training methodologies and conditioning and so forth, it's evolved so much in that sense, even in the last 10, 15 years. Now, what's happening is people are pulling from a lot of traditional martial arts systems that at which before, especially in the coming up of MMA was like, oh, it's useless. That's a blah, blah, blah. Especially when you watch the early ones and maybe like a straight karate guy just got pounded, right? Uh, so now instead, we've kind of, the system has, uh, MMA has evolved to almost, I guess, I'm, here I am shooting myself in the foot, uh, create this style. Like, okay, you know you have to have your uh, kickboxing, you know you have to have your wrestling and takedowns, and you've got to have your fighting on the ground. So now, what kind of variable can I bring in? What kind of uh, tangent, or not tangent, excuse me, what kind of variable, what kind of X factor can I have? Uh, and so maybe they do pull from traditional martial arts. Maybe you'll see mm-hmm. a guy using some sort of close range trapping, you know, maybe like a Wing Chun type aspect. Maybe you'll see a guy doing more Taekwondo style kicks, more karate style kicks, uh, catching people off guard. And I think it just goes to show that you can never underestimate your opponent, never assume that maybe because they have uh, a certain background that they will be dominant and or not be able to uh, give you trouble, right? And so I, I feel that with MMA becoming more mainstream and people having more of a basic knowledge of MMA and even terminology and submissions and this and that, that automatically garners a little bit more interest in martial arts, especially if you have individuals that have a traditional background and so forth. But I don't think it's necessarily uh, increased an interest in traditional martial arts per Mm -hmm. se, but I think there's still a large... uh, community of practitioners of traditional martial arts in the kind uh, that are very mainstream, say Taekwondo, say karate. Uh, And I would like to see a little bit more of that as well, because, I mean, I think there's still hubs where it goes on, but, you know, maybe not so much in other places. And because there's a lot of value and ethic and discipline you can learn from the traditional martial arts. And so I think it's great exposure in the Olympics and it'll be interesting interesting to see. It could just be an influx of new students from the Olympics and then it dies out, right? Things come and go. So I don't know if I answered that question even remotely close, but I uh, that's my answer. <laughs> so, uh, no, and I, I appreciate your answer. I mean, clearly you continue to gloss over Dimmock, but you know, one of these days we'll pin you down to that. <laughs> that's so funny. So, quintilly enough, we went and saw uh, the new Suicide Squad movie. Uh, and... Fun, good, but we're Jessica and I are kind of weird. We liked the original one too. So this one's it's it's a lot of fun. It comes off a little hokey and corny, but uh, worth going to see. But uh, it, it definitely is obviously trying to be more in line with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has some great moments, and the cast is all great, especially John Cena uh, and Sylvester Stallone as the shark. Uh, oh, yeah, it was, I didn't know that. Yeah, and funny enough, uh, there's a ton of great gags that did not make the trailer, so that's nice. But the reason I bring it up is because there's a whole sequence where uh, Idris Elba starts talking about the dim mock. And okay. so maybe you think of that, but uh, definitely uh, a fun watch, but you know, not the greatest superhero movie or even DC universe movie ever made. Well, if I'm not mistaken, we do know who worked on the action choreography for the first one. And the second one, they brought him in that's towards right. the end to it. Cause he just posted on social media about that. And that's our good friend, Mr. Richard Norton. Yeah. Uh, who works with Margot Robbie uh, for sure. And she has another great uh, sequence in that film. Like she has kind of what would be like the one big fight scene. Uh, And obviously her training with Mr. Norton pays off because uh, it's always highly enjoyable. He also worked on a Scarlett Johansson movie, correct? Was that Ghost in the Shell? Yes, I think you're right. Correct. Because it was around that era and I don't think it was any of the MCU ones, but uh, yes. Uh, So... 
what's next? What's next? So it's coincidentally enough, what we were going to talk about, one of our, our themes we had picked, we have a few we're working on, but you know, we like to do our research and so forth. So one of the random topics I coincidentally brought up a few days ago was going to be talking about Jackie Chan. But so what we should bring up and probably what we are going to talk about today uh, is the fact that within the last 24 hours, we have found out about the passing of Brad Allen. Uh, for those who don't know, Brad Allen uh, is a, was, excuse me, I, I have to use past tense now, was a member of the Jackie Chan stunt team. He was the first foreigner to ever be brought on. Uh, and so not only did he work with Jackie Chan for years on a lot of his projects, but for the last 20 years or so, he's been behind the scenes as the stunt coordinator, fight choreographer, fart, fart, fart fight coordinator uh, for tons of big Hollywood projects, some of your favorite action movies from the you know last uh, two decades, uh, I mean, including The Kingsman, which we I think we brought him up the other day when I was talking about we The did. Kingsman. We yeah, did. Uh, the Hellboy movies. In fact, when they originally announced that they were rebooting Ninja Turtles, his name was attached because they were saying how they were going to do it the same way as they did Hellboy with uh, real costumes, real makeup. And he was brought on as the fight choreographer. And I thought, first thing, okay, he's one of the best for any project, whether it's just straightforward martial arts as it is, but to bring him on for Ninja Turtles, where he's already had all this experience doing Hellboy and the great action sequences in those with all the makeup and prosthetics and stuff like that. Holy cow, it's going to be yeah. amazing. Instead, they went a whole nother route. Don't even want to talk about that. But for me, one of the most significant things he did was the movie Gorgeous. Uh, which yeah, yeah which came out uh, when I was like in middle school. And the nice thing about Gorgeous was uh, it got an immediate release in America. So it yeah, got released. 90, between I, 97 and 99, right? No, I think it's 99. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm checking right yeah, now. I think you're right because Mr. Yes. Nice Guy was probably around 97. Yes. it was. Oh, no. Mr. Nice Guy was 97 for sure, which that was his first uh, movie working with Jackie Chan. But yeah, so it was 1999. And you know what? I was coincidentally 99% positive, but I was doubting myself. Don't ever doubt yourself, kids. But uh and so it got an immediate VHS release. I remember the big wall at Hollywood Video with all the copies of it. Mm -hmm. And I I rented it for sure. And then I think when I went back to return it, they already had like some used copies maybe or it was a few weeks later and I bought it like a used VHS copy. And actually, I think it was maybe it was pre-COVID in Santa Monica in one of the bookstores. I bought a copy of it, a uh, used DVD of it because it was nice to you. I remember messaging you and it was great because this DVD I have uh, I was able, I, excuse me, I was able to watch it in both the original Cantonese uh, oh, audio great. and the Mandarin dub. And it is just, uh, and there's an audio commentary on there. And I was just so excited because that film for me was so great. And it's a unique film within Jackie Chan's library of movies because, you know, for years he was told uh, not to do like romantic films, not to mm -hmm. do. Uh, drama films, not to go out of the norm. And, you know, originally this was just supposed to be uh, a love story where he was the producer, but instead he decided to star in it. And then they added in some action, which I think was uh, a good choice because it's still, I mean, I still consider it's, it's interesting. It's unique. It's like a romantic action movie. And yeah. so within this film, there's two, there's a whole bunch of great fight scenes, but there's two incredible one-on-one -on -one sequences, kickboxing based between Brad Allen and Jackie Chan. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, this could be considered maybe one of the last great one-on-one, -on -one, like golden era one-on-one -on -one type fight scenes, because the first one is already lengthy enough. The second one is just this amazing, incredible sequence that goes on forever in the best kind of way. Something that you only saw in like the old school movies, right? Mm -hmm. They just don't. And, and it, go yeah, ahead. I mean, every, everything about it, like even like every, you can make fun of uh, like Hong Kong movies or, or if you wanted to try uh, how so many of the films end in a warehouse. I mean, yeah. it's just everything about it was throwbacks. M most of my college kung fu movies I made uh, in undergrad were filmed at my father's warehouse uh, just because that's where they're all set, right? And so this fight sequence between them though, and I think I can comfortably say, and this isn't to be mean or rude, I, it's the last truly great fight scene, one-on-one -on -one fight scene Jackie Chan did. But then that's nothing against Jackie because guess what? 1999, he was 45 years old. 
performing like a guy 20 years is younger. And it was just, it was kind of a great way to close out the millennium, right? Mm -hmm. And the decade and everything. And so this film uh, was just an amazing showcase for both of them. And you got to see Brad Allen, whose skills were just phenomenal. You could just, it, breathtaking how fast he was. Uh, his kicking ability was insane. His And obviously he had a good base in boxing and kickboxing, but you could tell he had a wushu background. And... I think uh, we're definitely going to talk a little bit more about that. But what people also have to understand is this kind of meteoric rise of Jackie Chan during this era, because especially for younger people, uh, but not even younger people, even people at our age that aren't necessarily fans of the genre. A lot of people forget there was a there was a long time there where nobody knew who Jackie was. Jackie was not part of American culture. Nowadays, it's Jackie's almost or even more well known than, say, like Bruce Lee. Jackie is part of the zeitgeist. I don't know. Probably not the right word, but uh, I felt like saying it. But, uh, you know, he is part of pop culture. He, you know, he's made these hugely yeah. significant films. But prior to 1995, unless you were a niche like kung fu movie nerd and so forth, you had no idea who Jackie was. Yeah, you, and I mean, he, some some of his greatest work took place before 1995. I mean, so much, so much of his... So much of his great work took place before 95, and 95 is when um, Red Bronx or Rumble in the Bronx came out, correct? Rumble in the Bronx, yeah. Was it called Red Bronx in Japan? Red Bronx. Wow. And, uh, you know, so you start to have these films that were previously released a few months earlier, a few years earlier, getting Mm -hmm. released. And so from, from 95 through early 2000, he had this run that included like previous releases you know you had uh operation condor mm-hmm. operation condor 2 which mm-hmm. is actually our operation condor 1 if we're being technical mm-hmm. like they're just like pile driving all his movies out including drunken master so when we start to see an original release made for america the first one i believe was mr nice guy in 97 and so it was like a simultaneous release with asia mm-hmm. and that's where i remember first seeing brad allen i'm like I'm like, oh, that guy can move, you know, like doing the door sequence. And, and then from there, you know, I'm watching Who Am I? So I saw Mr. Nice Guy in the theater in like Long Beach Lakewood area. Who am I on videotape? And I'm like, you, know, you get a glimpse of him, mm-hmm. you know, if you're paying attention. And then Gorgeous came out. And I, I, went, I went to see Gorgeous as a special screening at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, Marvin, who was like working there at the time, had got, got us tickets. So we went. And saw it on this like the big screen, and it was amazing. And that was just like that guy, you know, Brad Allen. I mean, he was just it, what what if you if you can if you make the argument that this is this represents Jackie Chan's last great fight sequence in many ways. This fight sequence represents passing of the torch uh, to someone who didn't carry on Jackie's legacy, but he encapsulated so much of what. Jackie did and continued it and they continue to work together. I mean, obviously he's on the stunt team, but I mean, also his work, I think two nights ago, I just saw, um, kick-ass, which he yes. is the stunt choreographer for. And I mean, there's, there's the sequence where hit girl mm-hmm. is like going through, going through all the guys and moving around. I'm like, who's stunt doubling her? Who is, who is like putting this together? Because I, when I started watching Kick-Ass, it was a result of, as we discussed last week, my watching Pig. I'm like, I want to get a little more Nicolas Cage in. Yeah. So I threw that on. And then of course it's Brad Allen's throwing together the stunts and it's just it's some amazing stunt fight choreography in that film. And it's what he's able to do is he's, he's taken so much of what you and I have seen in the eighties and nineties and he introduced it to mainstream America in a way that didn't necessarily have the Jackie Chan branding, so to speak. Like, so you have Jackie Chan's face, so you anticipate this. All of a sudden, we're watching kind of like a, you know, any of these films, He, it's just part of the, it's part of the zeitgeist. No, it's part of the, it's part of the vernacular of the cinematography. Yes, yeah, so I'm talking about, yeah, big words. Uh, yeah. No, you nailed it. And the thing is, so yeah, so 95 is when Rumble in the Bronx came out, right? And and people are, and then some people argue, well, no, Jackie had movies that were made for the American market beforehand. Sure, we'll talk about them. The Big yeah, Brawl, a.k.a. True. the Battle Creek, Battle Creek Brawl, which we just brought up, coincidentally enough, about 20 minutes ago, came out in 1980. This was the first launching pad they tried to do for Jackie Chan, uh, filmed in Texas, uh, in English, his first uh, movie in English, as 
And people will just say, he learned how to speak English in two weeks. I'm like, no, he learned how to phonetically uh, say his lines in that time. And then obviously over the years has learned uh, English. But the film did actually the funny part is people always say how it bombed. It really didn't bomb. It just didn't do half as good as they expected. Uh, I think because if I'm not mistaken off the top of my head, I think it made like $12 million in the box office, probably off of like a million something budget. So that's not terrible, especially for that era. Then uh, he was still under uh, like a combined contract with Golden Harvest and Warner Brothers. Obviously, Mm -hmm. yeah, because Warner Brothers were the ones that did Bruce Lee's movies, of course. And so they threw him in the Cannonball Run movies, which were huge hits. But once again, ensemble pieces. With the the person we mentioned last week, he and Michael Huey are driving around in a car in those movies. There you go. Well, in the first one, playing Japanese drivers. The second one, it's him and Richard Keel from the James Bond movies. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. It's a suppressed memory. Yeah. I I don't remember that. Uh, And so they threw him in those movies. uh, And then his second starring role, yes, did bomb terribly. The James Glickenhaus directed The Protector from 1985. Can I? Go ahead. I'm I'm interjecting all over the place. Do it. Can I just say, like, Jackie Chan with a gun, though? He knows how to shoot. Yeah, like that. That bathroom sequence is pretty freaking. When he amazing. jumps in midair and shoots, that's that's actually great. And the thing is, in retrospect, you rewatch The Protector. It's kind of a fun movie, uh, and it is fun to see a still broken English Jackie Chan and part of my French people here say, "Give me the fucking keys." Uh, you're like, "Oh wow, uh, Jackie Chan using uh, the f word." Yeah, but, he, uh, the you, are you going to mention the the how he redirected and recut a. Yes. Were you about to do that? Yeah, I'm going that direction. Oh, no worries. So, yeah, James Glickenhaus didn't like Jackie. Jackie didn't like him. Uh, James Glickenhaus didn't think American audiences would accept the Hong Kong action. And so, but the cool part is, it's interesting to see a Jackie choreographed style fight shot by a director that's more of like an American style. Because some of the stuff doesn't stand the test of time. Like, you know, the, the massage parlor fight stylistically looks cool but the it doesn't work like that yeah, rhythmic like kind side of punches yeah exactly there's the one shot where he jumps off the wall and kicks that's pretty cool but the finale even uh the not so much the unfortunately uh underused bill superfoot wallace uh uh, in that film uh, the finale between the two of them eh, but it's the part after that where he's fighting all the henchmen is actually pretty good yeah uh but yes jackie that experience was so Bad for Jackie. He took the film back with him to Hong Kong, re-edited it, recut it, reshot sequences, added a whole new subplot, reshot the finale with Bill Superfoot Wallace, and it was that uh, making kind of that remake, remaking a movie within a movie that inspired him to do Police Story. And, like, and yeah, Police Story, and also uh, uh, Armor of God, the whole the whole kidnapping sequence from The Protector, where they go into the fashion show. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is like a lame fashion show that Danny, he and Danny Aiello attend. Yeah. But then when you see like the way Jackie shot it for the, for that sequence where uh, Lola gets kidnapped. Yes. Lola Forner. No, wait, no, no, no. no, no. no. Lola Forner. Uh, oh, no. she helps them. Yeah. She helps them. But Michelle, uh, not Michelle Kwan. Uh, yes. Michelle Kwan. Right? No, wait. Rosamund Kwan. Jeez yes, Louise. Sorry. I was go. I was doing research for our uh, one of our future episodes coming up. But sorry. Rosamund Kwan uh, gets cat- kidnapped. Yeah. No, I mean, and just to do so, he basically recut that movie, The Protector, such a such a superior cut, and then mm-hmm. he was, you know, just kind of he kind of like you know people talk about how Michael Jordan and Larry Bird, you listen to these old stories, have like this like not revenge factor, but like I'm going to show you, which mm-hmm. is I guess revenge, uh, and then he went out and made two iconic movies, Police Story, which is you know I'll show you how to do a police drama, and then you know uh, Armor of God. Yeah. So. so next few years, his Hong Kong, you know, career is just skyrocketing in Asia. He's still he's like the biggest superstar in the world outside of America. And, you know, people had tried to still and he had fans in Hollywood, big fans. Uh, I mean, I've heard about Oliver Stone being on set of uh, Operation Condor, I think. So Armor of God, too. Uh, I, I think he had met with Spielberg before. Stallone was a huge fan. Stallone wanted him to play the Simon Phoenix role in Demolition Man. Uh, and, you know, so people had been trying to get him over there and he was just kind of so traumatized by that experience that he uh, pretty much just kept turning him down. So come the mid 90s, he decides that they decide, OK, let's try this Jackie thing. 
one more time, but he's uh, Jackie in America, but he's going to do it on his terms, right? And so it's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to shoot my own movie. We're going to shoot it in America, uh, mostly shot in Canada. Uh, so North America, yes, but we're going to, you know, it's going to be a Hong Kong movie we shoot over there and we can dual release it. And sure enough, that's what they did. And it ended up being a huge hit. It opened up number one in the box office its first weekend. And once again, this maybe I just have the same number in my head. I'm pretty sure it opened up to $12 million. So not bad at all. And it was number one in the box office is still mid 90s, much different than the Marvel Cinematic Universe era where movies opened up to insane numbers. Uh, and from there, he was such a big hit that it's like, wait a minute. And this goes back, this is a practice that goes back 25 years before that, where uh, in the early 70s, late 60s, for example, as families were moving out of the cities into the suburbs and they had to fill in, uh, you know, they were trying to attract the urban population within city centers to go to the movie theaters. That's when like black exploitation uh, became big, right? Another thing was this was the Kung Fu movie boom, right? But the Kung Fu movies were very economical for these producers because they could either buy films that were already made, redub them, put them uh, in American theaters and or produce films and they were super shoot to cheap in, uh, excuse me, super cheap to shoot in Asia and, you know, then release them to multiple markets all over the world. And so, uh, and they made a crap ton of money for these producers and distributors come 25 years later right mid 90s they're doing the same thing okay jackie's this big hit well uh, you know he can only make so many movies at a time but wait a minute we have this whole <laughs> library of his films from like the past five or six years and he just showed that a contemporary hong kong action film he shot completely on his own terms will sell to american audiences which producers for the longest time didn't think was the case i guess which like for example directors like james glickenhaus swore was not the case they were all wrong so they're like wait let's just start re-releasing these all these movies that happened in the last few years you know people aren't even gonna know the difference and we really didn't so and the best part was they got big releases uh some of them uh, most of them in theaters actually mm -hmm. uh, and so you had all these Jackie Chan movies coming out in theaters around the same time and he would typically redub his own voice so I know for a fact First Strike got a theatrical release aka Police yes. Story 4 which had just uh, which actually came out in 96 right and was it before I'm trying to think it could have been before Mr. Nice Guy absolutely yeah like, I think so when, we, when it was hit here when it hit here in America right because that one I, I'm I think yeah, that one got a theatrical ninety six. Yes, uh, yeah, so it, I, yeah, and it, it grossed fifteen point three million dollars in the U.S. box office. So they did that one, and then uh, obviously, uh, from the top of my head, I know uh, Operation Condor got released. So AKA Armor of God two. Then Armor of God, which they released here as Operation Condor two, got a VHS or straight to video mm -hmm. release with Jackie dubbing his own voice. Uh, Mr. Nice Guy got released in theaters here. Twin Dragons got, that was probably the oldest one that they re-released. Oh, Twin Dragons got a theatrical release. I loved, I, one day we can talk about yes. that movie. I just freaking love that movie. Uh, Drunken Master 2 eventually got one, I believe, in 99 as Legend of Drunken Master. Don't get me started on that cut of the film. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, and then so you just had this influx of Jackie Chan movies, which all led up to his first real big American production, 1998 Rush Hour. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was going to do a joke. Yes. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and then, so once Rush Hour came out, uh, for me, one of maybe, so there was Mr. Nice Guy, but then I remember for me, one of the first ones that was released as kind of, I thought it was an HBO original movie because it got, it premiered on HBO, but uh, was Who Am I? which was kind of another big international production that I believe yep. got released in 98. Uh, and then, yep. so, so going back to 95, we've got Rumble in the Bronx. We've got uh, Getting Released in America. We've got Operation Condor. We've got Armor of God, uh, Twin Dragons, Jackie Chan's First Strike, Mr. Nice Guy, uh, Who Am I? Rush Hour has now come out. So you have all these movies. And then in 99, uh, Jackie decides to do Gorgeous. So Rush Hour is already a massive hit. I, uh, Shanghai Noon, I'm not sure if they were already filming or had already filmed because Shanghai Noon, I'm pretty sure, was released in like 2000. Uh, mm -hmm. Rush Hour 2 came out in 2001. But in between all this stuff, he does Gorgeous, uh, which for him, I feel, is kind of something he'd been wanting to do for a long time. And it was pretty much, it was his producer, Leonard Ho, that had helped guide him in his career and always said, don't do the romance, don't do this. And when he passed away, Jackie was just kind of like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And 
So now we've caught up to Gorgeous, which is really, it's a deconstruction of the martial arts genre because it steps out of the comfort zone of most of these movies. Because even when you think about the uh, romantic relationships found in especially Jackie's movies or like Jet Li's movies, it's more of a comical gag as opposed to mm-hmm. a real authentic it's, uh, relationship. It almost comes yeah, like, off more platonic uh, than yeah. romantic. It's in many ways. It's like it, we were talking, I think, last week about uh, Jackie's like throwback movies, sort of like Mister, uh, not Mister Nice Guy, City Hunter. Mm-hmm. How it was like a throwback comedy in many ways, and like the relationships that he had with uh, Maggie Chung in the Police Story movies, in many ways, is like the Honeymooners or the Bickersons. It's like it's kind of plutonic or it's like Lucy and Ricky where mm-hmm. they can't really, they're not going to be in, in the, you know, they're going to sit on separate beds yeah, and they're going to just engage in the comedy of, of, you know, the battle of the sexes type comedy on top of an action movie or within an action movie. Yeah. Juxtaposed in an action film. Oh, I love our terminology we're using today. Uh, our rhetoric, our vernacular. Yeah. Uh, and I forgot what I was going to say. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and so this is this is a straight up romance. But the reason I love this movie so much is, first of all, the action doesn't feel forced. Like producers are like, well, we need more action in there, Jackie, which may have been, but it, it works so well for the plot. And on top of that, these two fight sequences you have, it's it's different than a lot of movies because they're sports based. You have these mm-hmm. two guys because Jackie's character, this self made. A millionaire who's made his fortune on recycling, helping the planet. He's such a good guy, right? But he is also kind of still a bit of a womanizer, which is, uh, you know, a- another thing they would have avoided putting into any of his movies before this. But uh, he also apparently used to be, and he still is, a-, a phenomenal athlete and fighter, right? But he's kind of focused more on work and this and that. So his l- lifelong frenemy, as you might say, his like, you know, best friend from elementary school and they've been frenemies their whole life competing against each other the, a rich kid he went to school with uh, Emil Chu right? yeah yeah very good who was also in Mr. Nice Guy ice oh, yeah, cream the- does anybody want some ice cream <laughs> oh, ice cream uh, not my business yeah <laughs> he's in here but uh, I love Mr. Nice Guy uh, but uh, so anyway he decides he wants to humiliate Jackie's character and hires the best fighter he can find, especially because Jackie's already beat up all of his guys so many times to, uh, you know, they have like a straight up boxing match, a kickboxing match with boxing gloves and so forth. And Jackie does okay, but gets soundly beaten really in the end. So Jackie decides to, to devote himself to training and getting back in shape and not for revenge, just to better himself. So it's mm-hmm. interesting. Here we are. We're deconstructing the contemporary Jackie Chan picture of that era. Yet at the same time, we're sneaking in elements of the traditional Kung Fu Pian. The, uh, the martial arts or fighter who loses has to train and better himself and uh, get better in his physical skill set and abilities. And then in order to come back and win in the end, which is what ends up happening. So they do have a second match, not for revenge or this or that, but because Brad Allen's character actually just wants a good challenge and heard Jackie's character is training again. So that's where we get the phenomenal second fight sequence, which is just... Uh, uh, and I love the English dub version I saw that came out. And I'm not sure if they use the same uh, music in the Cantonese and Mandarin dubs. I can't remember, but I I really like the musical score. It suits the fight scene. There's little hints uh, to like the Rocky uh, music and so forth. And just it, it's one of the only reason it didn't make either of our uh, greatest uh, one-on-one fight scenes list is because we set a rule where each actor could only have uh, one fight, but I'm not sure if it was on our honorable mentions. Uh, but for me, it, it, it may have been, I, I think it was, uh, maybe it was on mine, maybe it was on yours, but really that would bank my list. If I didn't have a, a rule, you know, saying Jackie can only have one fight team because it's just so phenomenal. And the stuff they do, it's got actually, it's some of the best example of realistic kickboxing since his fight with, uh, sensei Benny in wheels on meals. And yes, there's a lot of, uh, 
cinematic flair added to it. They do some big, crazy kicks. Uh, but their skill is just, it's legit. It's there. And yes, Brad Allen is so fast because he's so small. But you see Jackie, even at that age, performing some great jump spinning kicks and so forth. And yes, there's sequences where they're uh, boxing in the pocket and hands are maybe a little low because, you know, people love to be critical. But for the most part, it's a very well shot sequence that combines kind of almost real authentic kickboxing and boxing with this Hong Kong style of choreography. And it's, it, as I said, it's, it's almost like the final, this was the final performance of the golden era of Jackie Chan, you know, and he kind of, from this point, he, you know, he did uh, Shanghai noon, which was a great huge movie in rush hour. But then at that point, it's like his Hollywood career kind of started to fizzle a little bit. And then he's the movies he's done in the last 20 years have been a much different style, even the ways they approach the action and rightfully so, because he's gotten much older. I mean, we, we had a nice treat with CZ 12. I very much liked the finale of that. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of golden era Jackie style. And they showed he could still do it. Even in Robbie Hood. Robbie, I was just going to say yeah, Robbie Hood. Robbie, sure. Robbie Hood was the same. That was a couple years before around 2008. But once again, it's not so much. He does do some one on one stuff, but it's part of the whole ensemble uh, piece of the finale where they're fighting multiple people at once. It's not yeah. just a regulate straight up. Here we are. One on one fight scene. Because even when you look at his films from the years prior in the 90s, we didn't really have that as much either. Aside from Drunken Master 2 and his ending fight with Ken Lowe. Right. It was mostly these big group fight sequences. Uh which fulfilled all of our needs and desires, right? We weren't like wondering why in Operation Condor, he didn't have an extended battle, one-on-one battle with say Bruce Fontaine, even though that would have been really cool. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, it's just kind of, he fights all the stuntmen, right? He fights all of them. Steve Tartaglia, all these guys, uh, Bruce Fontaine, as I mentioned. And then you look at, uh, you know, First Strike. Uh, He has that little sequence with the big Russian guy in the aquarium uh, and that's great. But the highlight of that movie is the big uh, group fight scene where he's using the ladder and so forth. And same thing with Mr. Nice Guy. We unfortunately did not get that ending fight scene with Richard oh, I Norton. It, that, that, I, I mean, that is that is the I mean, there you can we can argue about some blemishes that might be on Jackie Chan's career post 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before 2003, the only one of the key blemishes is not by not by his hand, but the fact that there is no final fight with uh, Richard Norton at the end of Mr. Nice Guy. It's it's a real uh, it's a real robbery of uh, from us fans and from Jackie and and Richard because quite honestly, if that were there, who's to say that that fight wouldn't have been at a extremely high level? I mean, it would have been. Period. Mm-hmm. This is before Gorgeous, and this is shortly after Under the Gun for Richard Norton. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, we can, uh, yeah, we can. Well, let's just, let's let's find the producers, and let's get them to reshoot the scene. Yes, <laughs> but rule number one: keep your don't, blood. Yes, no, don't keep interrupting AJ. <laughs> no, you're you're. I'm. I I talk too much, so I I relish in the opportunity to listen to you speak. But uh, and before I forget, yes, the year prior, and who am I? We had the. F- awesome uh rooftop sequence with ron smorenberg and uh who's the other guy he fought i'm trying to remember uh uh i honestly i can't remember his name now but uh sorry about that but well brad allen was do- uh, uh, ron smorenberg, uh only you know uh, parts and that's yeah. that's totally normal because even jackie would get doubled in some parts but uh but even still that wasn't the straight up one-on-one it's he fights the one guy one-on-one then the other guy one-on-one then the two-on-one so it's close but it wasn't quite that same you know story arc of the one-on-one fight sequence right don't get me wrong i yeah. love that sequence and who am i but well, it's what, like it's it yeah it's also like first strike as well i mean i don't remember a true one-on-one fight sequence but i remember that ladder sequence right as i said the the closest thing in who am i is where he fights the big russian hitman with the mustache and then they get all the the one of those porcupine water things stuck to them i'm really bad with animals people uh jessica always laughs uh but uh whatever those things are but they have a great little sequence only lasts like 10 seconds but an awesome kickboxing style fight but yeah so and i almost wonder i almost wonder within jackie if he even thought like you know what this is this is my last hurrah in terms of like a big one-on-one fight scene like this uh because you have to think about that also takes a lot more out of the performer uh in a sense you know 
because whereas I feel like with a group fight, you're fighting one guy, then the next guy, and then it's a, it's a lot more bada bum, bada bum, bada bum. Whereas this, you have to really focus on the actual story of the fight scene a little bit more. But either which way, what, what we got was one of the greatest fight sequences of all time. And it worked because of Jackie's performance and Brad Allen's performance. And what we have to look mm-hmm. at also is their acting performances within were great too. Jackie, we know is phenomenal. You know, don't worry, be happy. But Brad Allen's performance is great too. Uh, just his overall acting from the first sequence with them to the second, kind of the serious nature of the guy. He plays, you don't look at him as a bad guy. You know, he's very serious. Uh, He's very stoic in a sense, but he just is uh, a fighter that likes to fight other good fighters. He doesn't have ill intent. He's not like even during the first fight scene with any wins, he goes to check yeah. on Jackie, make sure he is OK. He's not like, oh, I'm sorry. But, you know, he's just like, are you good? OK, cool. And well, even- it, it, this. Yeah. And this this is I'm stepping on all it. Step on my words, too. Uh, it's, it's like the, the exactly what we love of martial arts to teach us the Bushido way or the Buddha way or the the. The, the sportsmanship yep. that exists. And we see this at the Olympics and we saw it in that character that Brad Adam played. And Jackie's actually talked about that a lot. Like, cause I, I forget where I read it or heard it. Something him talking about MMA, how he doesn't like MMA because they, you know, they fight while they're on the ground and stuff and they start yeah. grounding and pounding, but it's sort of that, you know, and within the final fight, we see it again. Like when, uh, Brad Allen trips up, Jackie catches him where he could have easily like caught him off guard, helps him up and vice versa. Right. It's, it's honorable combat there. Don't get me wrong. They're going full at it, full, full force, but there's that Bushido. There's that sense of honor. We are two warriors fighting each other, not because we hate each other, but we want to test ourselves, uh, to our fullest ability, you know, which, uh, it's kind of funny. People sometimes ask me why I fight and stuff because I, I think I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm pretty, you know, uh, even tempered and so forth. But for me, it's it's not like, yeah, I like getting in there and hurting people. No, it's like I just want to test myself. I want to become the best martial artist I can. And we 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 get a sense of that, of that Bushido, that honorable way. And so back to the acting performances, not just his overall performance, but I also like some of the gags throughout it. Yes. Where they go super goofy, where they both punch each other at the same time and they're like cross-eyed and Mm -hmm. yes, it's totally over the top and goofy, but it works and uh, it fits the fight sequence and it takes a lot to pull that off. And Brad Allen did. And so it's, I'm not going to say unfortunate, but I would have loved to have seen him be able to do more in front of the camera, but at the end of the day, he, what better way to walk away from the game in a sense than making one of the greatest fight scenes of all time with Agreed. the greatest martial arts star, star of all time. And then just calling it a day, like, okay, cool. I, I mean, it's also like he, he's an anomaly. He, he, I mean, not just an anomaly because he's the first foreign born, uh, member to join the Jackie, Jackie Chan, uh, fight team. But also because of when this fight took place within the Hong Kong cinema golden era, mm-hmm. this ta- this essentially takes place. I, you could argue close to five years after the golden era has ended. We've also talked about uh, Gary Daniels and like if his career had started a little sooner, we probably would have seen more of him than just what we got in City Hunter. Mm-hmm. The fact that Brad Allen was able to break through like the ceiling of 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 where he was born. Mm-hmm. The ceiling of the Hong Kong Golden Age is over, but yet it still exists. And this this is the exception that that proves the rule or breaks the rule, I should say, that a 1999 film can have two extended fight sequences that are that are kickboxing style. And I think when we discussed our, our top fights, we did land on maybe the order was a little different, but we did talk about the first Benny, Sensei Benny, Jackie fight. We talked about uh, the pedicab driver fight sequence, and we talked about Flashpoint, how each one is a pin along the way, but there's a long gap from pedicab driver to Flashpoint, and right in that center is gorgeous, and Mm -hmm. it does definitely kind of chart, I'm kind of doing an upward chart here with my hand, it kind of charts the progress of on-screen fight sequences. Very well put, and obviously in the last 24 hours and stuff, we've seen how many people were directly influenced by Brad Allen, how many people actually had the fortunate opportunity to meet and work with him. And so many people from all 
sides of the entertainment business from producers to actors to stuntmen. I've been seeing comment how apparently he was just the nicest guy, a true uh, genius of his craft, uh, how inspirational he was to a lot of people. You see these people talking about how I was so happy I got to meet him and tell him how much he inspired me and so forth and so forth. And a lot of people that worked with him directly, you know, members of the Jackie Chan stunt team, uh, even like our friend of the podcast, Max Huang. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's obviously he had these, this huge effect on people and apparently was just a very nice professional individual who's gone way too soon. Our condolences go out to his family, go out to the Jackie Chan stunt team. Jackie released uh, a statement today, which you can read on his blog on his website. He also linked it up on his Instagram, the official Jackie Chan page on Instagram. And uh, sorry, we cut out there for a second, I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, But yeah, so you can just see what an effect he had and what I hope, what I hope is maybe we can take inspiration from him. Maybe we can try to capture some of that uh, essence he brought to the screen, both in front of and behind, and maybe push for more of an old school aesthetic, right? Let's let's go back yeah. to those hard hitting Hong Kong style fight scenes that he obviously grew up watching and then had the opportunity to replicate. Because when you watch stuff like Kick-Ass, when you watch stuff like, say, The Kingsman or mm-hmm. any of these films, you you see that magic. And it's something that is severely missing these days in action cinema. It's so much, so, it's so hit or miss. It is. And, and I mean, it, you know, if you want to do a highly edited film or a stylistically shot film, that's great. We're not going to complain because, I mean, like, we'll enjoy a film like Taken. Mm-hmm. But if you... If the performers in front of the screen are performing in a way that ha- that are rooted in the traditions of, of fight, uh, cam- uh, on screen fight, on screen fighting, as well as rooted in the traditions of martial arts, you're going to produce something that is so much uh, greater than than just uh, than just uh, I'm going to say it, Charlie's Angels. Hey, I highly enjoyed the first Charlie's Angels movie. The second one. Uh, not so much, and in the most recent one, I, I've, I've not heard great things. Well, it, it's, it, whichever one had the really bad uh, the Matrix type kicking in it, I think that was the second one. Maybe either which way. Uh, yeah, but we're you getting get what off. I'm yeah, I get a hundred percent what you're saying. Just, I'm saying like I'm basically saying like the 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 absolute professionalism mm-hmm. of what Brad Allen provided on screen. And I'm, now I'm feeling bad for like throwing Charlie's <laughs> Angels under the bus, but okay. Uh, just that absolute professionalism that he brought. Uh, so no matter what your editing style, your shooting style, that professionalism is going to come across because I mean, quick edits, quick kind of camera movement and kick ass, but it still comes through mm-hmm. in such a hard phenomenal way, hard hitting. Great. I mean, you know, I'm sure that Samuel doesn't sit down and watch a lot of American action movies from start to finish. But if he would, he would watch a Brad Allen movies. Oh, yeah. I'm just projecting now, but I think he would watch it and enjoy it. Like kick ass, uh, Kingsman. Come on. These mm-hmm. are, these are fantastic films. Yeah. And, uh, I think that pretty much sums it up. Once again, our condolences to everyone, uh, who's been hurt by this tragic loss, especially his family, his friends, and we can, I mean, luckily for us, we will always have the memory of him. We have the film Gorgeous, and we have all the movies he worked on. So a big thank you to Mr. Bradley James Allen and uh, all the work he did, all the the magic he gave us, inspiring us. And uh, yeah, and on that, do you have anything else you'd like to add? I mean, this guy, he works so hard. you know, I want—I I don't want to say for us, meaning us fans, but I mean, he—he he helped bring back an era that had that had passed its expiration date and Ooh. continued it. And you know, uh, he's going to be missed. Definitely going to be missed. And on that note, uh, we'll wrap this up, and I will be seeing you next week for sure. Uh, once again, by the time this episode comes out, my interview with uh, my good friend. Uh, Dr. Antonio Grichefo, a.k.a. The Brooklyn Monk, should have already been released. And uh, we'll decide what we're recording next week. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Peace, my man. Take care.